Episode 26 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 6.1, Lamanite Western Campaign, Reinforced Success of the Amalekiahite War, Battle Analysis, Second Battle of Noah. Lehi was told by God, and he subsequently told his children the following critical lesson that is repeated multiple times in the Book of Mormon. I quote from Alma chapter 50, verses 20 to 22. Blessed art thou and thy children, and they shall be blessed, inasmuch as they shall keep my commandments, they shall prosper in the land. But remember, inasmuch as they will not keep my commandments, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And we see that these promises have been verified to the people of Nephi, for it has been their quarrelings and their contention yea, their murderings and their plunderings, their idolatry, their whoredoms, and their abominations, which were among themselves, which brought upon them their wars and their destructions. And those who were faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord were delivered at all times, whilst thousands of their wicked brethren have been consigned to bondage, or to perish by the sword, or to dwindle in unbelief and mingle with the Lamanites." Moroni has been the driving character in our podcast series for the past six episodes. His development as a leader, his focus, and understanding of his role have changed over this time. No longer is he a junior commander, as we might imagine that he was, in the tremendous battle of the wilderness. Nor is he a commander in a single engagement as he was at the Battle of Manti. In the Amalekiahite War... Moroni was the senior commander and manager of a multi-theater war against an opponent who was eating away at the internal structure of the Nephites, Moroni's people, and the Nephite country, as well as attacking its cities and killing its people. In part six of the podcast series, we see Moroni's frustration, as well as his ability to inspire and lead. His primary emphasis was against the kingmen, in and around the center of the country, and then he led the efforts in the east. One way to look at this was that Moroni had greater concerns about internal dissension and the larger Lamanite armies and newer Nephite cities with weaker garrisons in the east. I will use the term theater throughout this part of the podcast series. This is a military designation of an area of war. In the Amalekiahite War, there are three theaters of importance— the eastern theater that runs along the eastern sea coast and extends to the north at the city and land of Bountiful, the western theater, which seems to have been on the southern portion of Nephite lands and lies on the western side of the river Sidon, the central theater, which was the lands and cities around the capital city Zarahemla. In the story of the Amalekiahite War, each theater goes through a three-part progression— Initial Nephite defeats, stabilization, and then finally Nephite reconquest. This process was slightly disrupted by the efforts of the kingmen who mounted two rebellions, one each in the first and third parts of the progression. In the Amalekiahite War, Mormon seeks to truly use not just battle, but war as his metaphor of instruction. He uses this 12-year period of struggle to express the war between the followers of God and the followers of Satan. 
The subterfuge and deceptions used are critical to understanding this eternal struggle. No tactic or technique presented in the battles that are recorded between Alma chapters 49 and 62 are trivial or only relevant to students of military history. Mormon shared these with his readers to instruct us on what the enemy will try and what we need to do to fight against him. It is precisely for the eternal importance of these details that they are covered in such depth here. Hopefully, as they are discussed in detail and with clarity, each listener will better understand how to apply the lessons to his or her own life and be all the better prepared as a result. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Overview of the Battle This episode deals with the first Lamanite campaign in the Amalekite War. It is recorded in Alma chapter 49, verses 1 through 25. I encourage you to read the account prior to this discussion. Amalekiah sent his armies, captained by Zoramite dissenters, to return to the place of the only Lamanite success in the greater land of Zarahemla, Ammonihah. That success came eight years earlier, when the Lamanite army destroyed the city and killed everyone in it in a single day. The campaign discussed in this episode demonstrates some key components within the development of military affairs and presents the first or only representations of some critical components of military actions. Lamanite use of armor, city fortifications, and assault of a fortified position. Each of these elements is crucial to understanding the development of conflict throughout the rest of the Book of Mormon. It is important to understand that the Nephites no longer enjoyed a vast superiority in arms and armaments. It is also important to understand both how cities were fortified and the existing conceptualization of how to attack fortified cities. City defense and assault are at the center of warfare from this point in the Book of Mormon forward. This episode also presents the critical leap in describing the important trait of empathetic understanding of an opponent. Mormon again uses Moroni as the example of this trait, and he also demonstrates the change in Moroni as he no longer needed to seek the guidance of a prophet to know where the enemy would attack or what they would do. Moroni was able to see and reason these things for himself. Geographical Setting Location. The campaign took place in the lands of Ammonihah and Noah. These are lands that are briefly discussed in episode 17 or part 4.2 and occurred in 81 BC or the 11th year of the reign of the judges when the Lamanite army attacked and completely annihilated the city of Ammonihah. As a reminder, this happened after the Lamanite army left their murder of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and the city of Ammonihah had murdered saints and cast out Alma II and Amulek, as recorded in Alma chapters 24 and 14, respectively. The Lamanite army destroyed the city of Ammonihah and killed its inhabitants, and then took captives from the land and city of Noah, only to lose those captives in a series of, what I suppose to be, desultory battles, led by the Nephite chief captain Zoram II, and his sons, Aha and Lehi too. 
Ammonihah is on the west of the land of Zarahemla, and to the north of the city of Melech, as we are told in Alma 8, verses 3 and 6. The location of Noah is never given in detail. For the descriptions here, the following assumptions are made. First, Noah was south of Ammonihah. This assumption is made because in both the earlier attack on Ammonihah and in this battle, Noah was attacked as an afterthought, after the Lamanite army had turned toward the land of Nephi. In the first instance, prisoners were taken from Noah, as discussed in episode 17. This was probably done as the army moved on its return and as a target of opportunity. Second, it is further assumed that Ammonihah must border the wilderness as this allowed for a rapid and warningless attack. Noah was further away, in a position more difficult for a rapid raid to be successful, hence its safety in the initial attacks on both occasions. Terrain slash Vegetation It is important to note that no details are given concerning the vegetation or terrain other than the use of the word wilderness. Based on the general assumption that the Nephites were an agrarian people, their cities were probably surrounded by some form of farmland. The wilderness described was probably wooded terrain that surrounded the city and its farmland. The vegetation at the site of the battle was not an impediment to the fighting, as no mention is made of difficulty in moving the armies on the ground, seeing leaders or hearing commands. Mormon records that the Lamanites appeared in the land of Ammonihah on the tenth day of the eleventh month of the nineteenth year of the reign of the judges of the people of Nephi in Alma 49 verse 1. This corresponds roughly to about 73 BC. There are few exact dates of battles in the Book of Mormon, but most of the ones that are given tend to happen at the end or beginning of the Nephite calendar year. For example, the last attack on the city of Ammonihah occurred on the fifth day of the second month of the eleventh year of the reign of the judges. I am going to suppose, from the data that we do have, that the beginning and end of the Nephite calendar year was the typical campaigning season for the armies. It probably followed the harvest time, or preceded planting, as that would place the least burden on the warrior farmers who made up the ranks of the armies. In this specific instance, the time was dictated by the Lamanites and might have been scheduled to coincide with harvest time, allowing for the greatest benefit of plunder. Who is involved? Nephite forces. The battle at Ammonihah is a sort of non-battle in that no actual engagement occurred. As a result, no detailed information is given of the Nephite forces responsible for the defense of that land or city. The reader is told that Moroni had stationed an army by the borders of the city of Ammonihah in Alma 49-2. Given previous discussions in this podcast series on what a Nephite army might have consisted of, it is assumed that the force was roughly 2,000 strong, though there may have been a distinction between a field army and a garrison army. If so, and based on the discussion about fortifications that follows the recounting of this story in Alma chapter 50, one might assume that a garrison force was smaller than a field army. The force in Ammonihah was a garrison force. There is little information on the Nephite levy slash draft system other than that previously discussed. It is probable that most, if not all, of this army was locally levied and then, possibly, augmented as necessary from other cities. 
The Nephite force at Noah is never really disclosed. Mormon does not even use the word army. The reader is told that Lehi, too, was the commander of the forces defending the city in Alma 49.16. Lehi, too, divided his men according to fighting ability and had placed a body of his strongest men at the entrance of the city, as we are told in Alma 49.20. Otherwise, he placed others with missile weapons on the walls of the city to prevent the Lamanites from breaching the fortifications. For the purpose of this podcast... I am saying that Lehi commanded an army approximately 2,000 men strong. The Nephites also had an extensive spy network, both domestically and externally, as has been discussed in previous episodes. Unlike the first Battle of Ammonihah, when the city was destroyed in a single day, in the second Battle of Ammonihah, there was a warning. The Nephites saw the approach of the armies of the Lamanites as expressed in Alma 49.1, and were prepared to meet them. I suppose that this seeing came through spies. Lamanite Forces No name is given for any of the Lamanite leaders. This may be because they were all killed, and the enemy fled without allowing for Nephites to question prisoners. It is stated that Amalickiah was not with them, and it can be inferred that neither was his brother, and the man who will succeed to the throne, Amaron. The Lamanite captains, we are told in Alma 48, verse 5, were all taken from the Zoramites. Mormon says in Alma 49, 1, that the Lamanite armies, I want to emphasize the plural, were approaching. We are later told in Alma 49, verse 13, that the Lamanites had chief captains, also plural. I am disinclined to associate this plural with specific numbers of forces, Instead, I think the plural of armies and chief captains leads toward a Lamanite army made up of smaller contingents, possibly from various tribes or families, each one having their own chief captain. The armies of the Lamanites were still a large force, certainly larger than the city defenders. They referred to in Alma 48.3 as a numerous host prior to their departure from the land of Nephi. Based on the reported Lamanite death toll from Alma 49.23 of more than 1,000 prior to the Lamanites breaking and retreating to the wilderness, and the fact that they did not break prior to the death of all the chief captains, leads me to an estimate of an army between 6,000 to 10,000 strong. I will give my reasons for this estimate. 1. The army began the battle in a state of shock from seeing unexpected fortifications, In short, the warriors were not in a positive state of mind. 2. One can imagine that as the army marched away from Ammonihah, being shocked by the fortifications there, only to arrive at Noah and see even greater fortifications, this had to have a demoralizing effect. 3. The attacks against Noah did not seem to have any noticeable harm on the Nephite opponents. We are told in Alma 49, verse 23, that not a single Nephite was slain. That would demoralize an attacker. 4. All of the Lamanite chief captains were slain. 5. In ancient battles, the number of wounded often equaled or exceeded the dead. If true, in this battle, the Lamanites suffered more than 2,000 casualties and possibly many more. All of these reasons caused me to imagine that the Lamanite armies were more inclined toward defeat than a highly motivated force would be. 
Such suppositions lead to a casualty figure of anywhere from 20 to 33% of my estimated army strength. That seems well within historical norms. Key Leaders in the Battle Nephite Forces Lehi II, Commander of the City of Noah The reader is told in Alma 49.16 that this is the same man who was with Moroni at the first battle of Manti. It is not specified, but I believe that this is the same Lehi II, which is why I call him Lehi II rather than Lehi III, who served as a subordinate commander for his father Zoram II in regaining Nephite prisoners after the Lamanites attacked this same area eight years earlier, as we are told in Alma 16.5. Regardless of the accuracy of my opinion, Lehi II was known and feared by the Zoramite commanders and by the Lamanite warriors, as we are told in Alma 49.17. I remind the listener that the first battle of Manti was fought against a Zoramite-led force. Lehi II, in that battle, stood with an estimated force of 2,000 against an army of perhaps 12,000. He attacked such that the Lamanite army fled across the Sidon River. This was a courageous act that clearly garnered respect that was passed from the leaders then present to the leaders and warriors present at Noah a year later. Lamanite Forces No specific Lamanite leaders were identified. What we do know is that there were multiple chief captains, and I suppose that they were selected from the Zoramites. This meant that the chief captains were probably from a different subgroup of Lamanites than were the fighters and warriors over whom they had authority. Every one of the chief captains were killed in the Second Battle of Noah. Grand and Theater Context In this section, I want to provide a simple recap of the main events leading up to this war. Amalickiah sought to be king of the Nephites earlier in the same 19th year of the reign of the judges, as we are told in Alma 46.4. When Moroni found out about his efforts, he raised the title of liberty and led a popular uprising against the desire to have a king, and Amalickiah lost his popular support. Amalickiah took his followers, and they fled to the land of Nephi. Moroni took an army and followed Amalickiah and his people and captured many of them. Amalickiah fled the battlefield and went to the land of Nephi, and Moroni took the remaining supporters of Amalickiah back to the land of Zarahemla as prisoners. Moroni caused the followers of Amalickiah to either enter a covenant to support the, quote, cause of freedom, close quote, or be put to death. Amalickiah continued to flee to the land of Nephi, where he used the tactics discussed in detail in episode 24, or part 5.5, to become king of the Lamanites. Once he gained this position, he caused that anti-Nephi propaganda should be preached to the Lamanites, until he was able to convince them to go to war with the Nephites once again. He gathered a large army by the end of the 19th year of the reign of the judges, and he sent this army to battle. While all this was going on, it is important to remember the events and activities explained in Episodes 21 and 23, or Parts 5.2 and 5.4 of this podcast series, about the preparations taken by Moroni. He was leading the Nephites to clear the eastern wilderness and to found and fortify cities. Both Amalickiah and Moroni were conducting strategic preparations. It is in this period 
probably best articulated in the 19th year of the reign of the judges, where warfare in the Book of Mormon changed. Even in the Zoramite War, in the 18th year of the reign of the judges, where one of the stated objectives was to bring the Nephites into bondage, the Lamanite commander Zarahemna was not fully prepared for complete domination of the Nephites. Zarahemna was completely unprepared for such a task in terms of planning and resources. Despite the stated objective, the real intent of that war was localized conquest. Amalickiah was different than his Lamanite ruling predecessors. He was preparing a comprehensive plan for the destruction of the Nephite government and Lamanite control of all Nephite lands. It can be surmised what his overall vision might have been. Amalickiah seems to have been looking for an easy victory, hence the targeting of an area that had fallen very rapidly and completely on a previous raid. He probably intended to use this initial success to gain further legitimacy with the Lamanite and dissenter tribal leaders. It is critical to always remember that Amalickiah was a usurper, and therefore many of his actions were probably shaped by the need to gain build, and maintain legitimacy. It is unclear what Amalickiah originally intended to do following what was certain that he imagined to be an easy victory. Maybe he would have immediately followed up with an attack along the east coast as he ultimately did almost six years later, or maybe he was going to go straight from Ammonihah towards Zarahemla. We don't know. It seems clear that he was bent on total defeat of his opponents. Thus, This first defeat was in no ways a mortal blow to his plans, but rather it stood as an irritant and a waste of much-needed resources. Moroni may have known exactly what Amalickiah was thinking and planning, as he seemed to have had an effective spy network within the Lamanite-controlled areas as well as his own. Assuming he did not, why was Ammonihah and Noah part of the land so well protected? Moroni must have been a student of history and warfare. He freely quoted Jacob, as we see in Alma 46, verses 24 and 25, as if he regularly read, heard, and studied his words. He used armor and developed tactics similar to that of the Jaredites, and he used many of the techniques utilized by the Xenophytes. It is possible that he was such an original thinker that he came up with all of these ideas on his own. It is more likely that, instead, he was a good student and learned and used the techniques of the past to develop his plans. Therefore, he knew what a weak area was. He knew where the Lamanites had had their only significant military success within the greater land of Zarahemla, Ammonihah. Further, he understood what they had done after destroying Ammonihah. They attacked Noah. Thus, his preparations were and are logical. First, prepare Ammonihah sufficient to deter and, if necessary, defeat a Lamanite attack. Second, prepare Noah, even more than Ammonihah, to deal with an angry army that may have turned away from Ammonihah, much as a previous Lamanite army had turned away from Jershon when they saw the individual armor that was so new and surprising and attacked somewhere else. As part of this preparation, Moroni puts one of his most trusted subordinate commanders in charge of the city's defense. It is possible that Lehi was from Noah, and that, at this point in the Nephite military evolution, Nephite commanders were based in their hometowns. Regardless, 
I believe these are the thoughts behind the actions by both Amalekiah and Moroni. Operational Context The use of spies in providing intelligence information is present throughout Book of Mormon conflict. In this set of battles, the use of spies was significant. The comparison to the pre-Moroni days is instructive. I reference the account of the first battle of Ammonihah in Alma 16, verses 1 through 3. Quote, And it came to pass in the eleventh year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, on the fifth day of the second month, there having been much peace in the land of Zarahemla, there having been no wars nor contentions for a certain number of years, even until the fifth day of the second month in the eleventh year, there was a cry of war heard throughout the land. For behold, the armies of the Lamanites had come in upon the wilderness side into the borders of the land, even into the city of Ammonihah, and began to slay the people and destroy the city. And now it came to pass, before the Nephites could raise a sufficient army to drive them out of the land, they had destroyed the people who were in the city of Ammonihah, and also some around the borders of Noah, and taken others captive into the wilderness. Close quote. In the earlier battle, there was no warning, and the Nephite armies gathered after the fact. In the second battle of Ammonihah, the difference is stark, as I quote from Alma 49, verse 1. And now it came to pass in the eleventh month of the nineteenth year, on the tenth day of the month, the armies of the Lamanites were seen approaching towards the land of Ammonihah. Close quote. In this second set of battles, the Lamanites were seen as they approached the land of Ammonihah. There was warning as a result of what I suppose to be Nephite spies. It is left up to the reader to appreciate the role of spies and imagine how or where those spies gained the seeing referenced. Were these spies present in the land of Nephi, where they heard the propaganda and watched the army march off? Were these spies positioned in the wilderness between the lands of Zarahemla and Nephi and observed the Lamanite army marching along well-known paths? Were these spies set out by the cities of Ammonihah and Noah, who happened upon the Lamanite armies in camp and were able to warn the cities? We don't know. In my romantic moments, I want to imagine that there were some form of all of these spies, strategic spies who operated in the land of Nephi, operational spies who regularly patrolled and observed the paths connecting the two lands and peoples, and tactical spies who operated from each city, fortification, or field army to know what was happening in the surrounding areas. Technical Context This first portion of the Amalekiahite War features three significant technical aspects of conflict in the Book of Mormon, Lamanites in armor, city fortifications, and an assault of a fortified position. This is the first instance where the Lamanite warriors have personal armor, and it is also the first contact with city fortifications. This is the only instance of a description of an attempt to assault a fortified position. The first item is the Lamanite armor. The fact that the Lamanites had armor is a clear indication of the significance of the Nephite dissenters. Given Amalekiah's popularity, it is certain that he had been a tribal leader and was probably a military commander. Thus, he or his followers would have known of Nephite armor and possibly how to make it as well. This direct transfer of technology through communication of personal knowledge 
through dissension, is one of the reasons for the Lamanites maintaining near-technological parity throughout the Book of Mormon. Mormon explains the Lamanite armor with the following, and I quote from Alma 49, verse 6, Shields, and with breastplates, and they had also prepared themselves with garments of skins, yea, very thick garments, to cover their nakedness, close quote. As mentioned in a previous episode, it is unclear whether the shields mentioned were Near Eastern personal shields designed to protect most or all of the body or a form of personal armor worn. It seems probable that the Nephites have evolved to the use of the larger hand-carried shields in this battle as expressed in Alma 49.24. Despite the technological leap by the Lamanites, the Nephites were still a step ahead. The step ahead is the second item of defensive fortifications. These fortifications are understood best as a combination of fixed fortifications and mobile personal shielding. The fortifications of Ammonihah, and particularly Noah, were critical to the Nephite's success. It is important to look at each of these defensive networks as they were not the same. Ammonihah was the first Nephite city seen by the Lamanites that featured the defensive networks of Moroni. The city was protected by Nephite warriors stationed, quote, by the borders of the city, close quote, and these warriors enjoyed the protection of a continuous wall or berm of dirt so high that the stones and arrows could not have effect, as we are told in Alma 49, verses 2 and 4. There seemed to have been a single entrance point in the circuit of the wall or a place of entrance. This is a simple system a single wall or dirt berm that seemed to be primarily built for two reasons. One, to protect the city from missile attacks, and two, to channel the opponent to a single defensible point of entry. The walls in both cities were described as protecting the city and defenders from the stones and arrows of the Lamanites. I do not believe this means the walls were so high that they could not be shot over, as that would be dozens of feet high and prohibitively difficult to build. One explanation for the challenges with shooting over the wall was expressed by William Hamblin in the 1990 book, Warfare in the Book of Mormon, where he offered that Nephite and Lamanite bows may have been weak in terms of draw weight and range. It is also possible that the reference to the walls protecting the Nephites was from missile direct fire rather than indirect fire of arrows on steep trajectories. The city of Noah featured significantly more complex obstacles and defensive systems, as we are told in Alma 49, verse 14, and I quote, to exceed the strength of the city of Ammonihah, close quote. There is not much detail in the description found in the record other than this assertion, but there is significant information from which readers can infer connections to information found in Alma chapters 48 and 50. The story in Alma 49 describes Lamanite difficulty in getting into Nephite forts of security associated with the city of Noah, except through the entrance, as stated in Alma 49.18. The forts of security could have been the prototypes for the towers and casement walls described in Alma chapter 50. In addition to the forts of security and the dirt berm wall and a place of entrance, the Nephites added a ditch. The ditch existed all around the wall, with the exception of the entrance, as given in Alma 49.18. It is probable that the ditch, or moat, was of sufficient depth and or steepness to deter opponents from simply walking into it and climbing the adjacent wall. 
The third technical issue discussed in this sequence of battles is that of the assault of a fortified position. Up to this point in the Book of Mormon, there is no evidence of an assault on a fortified position and no implication of battles in defense of fortifications. Even after this battle, there are only two other instances in the Amalekiahite War of some form of assault. One is at the Second Battle of Gid, recorded in Alma chapter 55, verses 16 to 27, where the Nephites pass weapons into the prisoners held inside, and second is the Second Battle of Nephiha, recorded in Alma 62, verses 18 to 26, where Moroni's warriors conduct an escalade of the walls at night and away from the defenders. There are several sieges conducted by both armies, but no other assaults. It is possible, as will be discussed later in our podcast series, that in Mormon's era, city assaults were more common. But in the period of Moroni as chief captain, we have only this one description. As a related but side note, this is one of the reasons why I am inclined to believe that the preparations conducted by Amalekiah in the next five to six years that enabled his armies on the east and in the west to take ten Nephite cities probably involved subterfuge and spy networks, more so than perfecting assault techniques. As I said in episode 24, Amalekiah probably did a combination of the two to achieve his improved success. At the fighting around Noah, the Lamanites demonstrated some of their simple techniques of warfare. They attacked the place of entrance with masses of warriors. After repeated failures, they then, almost as a spontaneous rather than planned act, began to sap the walls in an attempt to dig through them. All of these actions lead me to believe that this most complex action in ancient warfare, the assault of a fortification, was poorly planned and it was uncoordinated. I believe that the uncoordinated and poor planning further supports the idea that this was a novel situation. The Lamanites did not know what to do. Interestingly, nearly 12 years later, the Nephites experienced a similar challenge and Moroni seemed to develop a plan on the spot. This will be discussed in a later episode. It seems that there was no such thing as military doctrine or even standard operating procedures for the Lamanites and Nephites, and therefore each commander was forced to create solutions to answer the needs of the moment rather than being able to rely on proven procedures and doctrines. I think that over the following episodes I can demonstrate a change in this regard as Moroni's efforts became more and more institutionalized. Tactical Events The Nephites identified Lamanite armies moving into the land of Ammonihah. Those armies probably moved through the adjacent wilderness to reach the closest point of approach to the city before they planned to make their attack. This is supposition, and the sketches that I will post on Facebook, as are all of the sketches connected with these podcast episodes, are estimates, or best guesses. The sketches capture terrain and vegetation such that it was possible for an army to make a rapid march to within attacking distance of the city Ammonihah which would allow the Lamanites to completely destroy the city in a single attack with little to no warning, as was done in the first battle of Ammonihah in the eleventh year of the reign of the judges. I am supposing that the Zoramite commanders in the second battle of Ammonihah were trying to replicate this singular success. 
It was mentioned previously, but it is important enough to mention again that this was the site of the only Lamanite military success in the entirety of Nephite-Lamanite conflict in the land of Zarahemla up to this time. The desire to replicate this success had to be at the core of the decision to attack a city seemingly so far from the heart of the Nephite lands. The story, as given in Alma 49, clearly identifies a lack of strategic, operational, or tactical spying on the part of the Lamanite armies. Either Amalekiah left the land of Zarahemla before most of the defensive work was done, or he was completely unaware of the scope of the work and the fact that even the cities so far away from Zarahemla were protected with elaborate defenses. It is also possible that Amalekiah did know and he chose not to disclose this information to the commanders of his armies, fearing a reluctant people would be even less willing to fight if they received reports of what might seem to be fanciful defensive efforts. Regardless of the reason, the Lamanites showed up at Ammonihah, unprepared for the defensive works, and seeing the walls generated leadership shock. The leaders were forced to decide whether to conduct what they must have perceived to be a fruitless or at least extremely costly attack, or move to a better target. They chose the better target, or so they thought. We are told in Alma 49 verse 13 that after leaving Ammonihah with the intent to attack Noah, the Lamanite commanders swore an oath that they would destroy Noah. The commanders of the Lamanite armies were Zoramites, and I suppose that most of the warriors were Lamanites, which meant there must have been leadership tension in maintaining proper command authority. One might also imagine dialect and language issues between commanders and fighters. All of this would add to inherent problems of commanding in a pre-modern era. Imagine a fighter seeing the wall around Ammonihah for the first time and being told that the army was going to attack an easier target close by, all while not fully understanding the words and commands spoken by the leaders. Leaving one city because it looked too difficult, even though the warriors were probably happy with the decision, made the commanders look weak. They needed to regain their authority, and a promise to conquer or die probably was an attempt to regain credibility and command authority. The problem was that such a promise was done before the commanders had seen the city of Noah and its defenses. Another example of bad spying on the part of the Lamanites. Clearly, the Lamanite chief captains were thinking that no city could be better protected than was Ammonihah. And you can almost hear Mormon's smile as he recounts their shock at seeing the defenses of Noah in Alma 49.14. The Lamanite chief captains were further dismayed by the newly acquired knowledge of the Nephite commander of Noah, Lehi II. Since these chief captains were Zoramites, many of these leaders might have been present at the Battle of Manti when Lehi II played a fearsome role. Even if these commanders and warriors had not been at that battle, they must have heard the stories as they feared this Nephite commander. The chief captains probably learned of Lehi II's presence in Noah as they conducted the initial negotiations to invite the Nephites to an open field battle, which was certainly declined. Such an invitation seems to have been common among the Nephites and Lamanites, and this was a common practice in dealing with most city assaults in the ancient and medieval world. The Lamanite chief captains had no options. They had to attack. They had sworn a public oath. 
They had already left one city without an attack, and their armies were probably on the verge of mutiny. They organized their fighters to assault the only obvious chance for success, the place of entrance. I say organized, but it is unclear if the Lamanites did anything more sophisticated than send masses of fighters against a place. An important note is the information that Mormon gives about the planning, and I quote from Alma 49.15, And now behold, this was wisdom in Moroni, for he had supposed that they would be frightened at the city Ammonihah, and as the city of Noah had hitherto been the weakest part of the land, therefore they would march thither to battle, and thus it was according to his desires, close quote. Ammonihah's and Noah's defenses were not a result of happenstance, but they were specifically planned by Moroni. He expected the Lamanites to do exactly as they did, and he expected the reaction as we have seen. Moroni was a student of his opponent. He knew how they thought, and this allowed him to win battles by presenting scenarios to his opposing commander that caused shock and led to withdrawal rather than engagement. The supposed organization of the Lamanite armies as a conglomeration of tribal groups, each with a Zoramite chief captain, means that it was possible that there could have either been a single commander over the various chief captains or numerous commanders sharing the command authority through a form of tribal consensus. To modern soldiers, such a loose leadership configuration seems a violation of the principle of war, unity of command. It was. But such associations were common among tribal warrior societies throughout history. For example, the American Indians that defeated the U.S. Army in 1876 at the Battle of Little Bighorn had such a command relationship. There was no senior leader then. The consistent reference to the plural when addressing Lamanite combat leadership at the Second Battle of Noah might cause one to lean toward the multiple commander scenario. If this was so, then the behaviors observed by Lamanite fighters throughout the battle makes more sense, as one can imagine the tensions of multiple commanders as well as differing guidance from different leaders. One can almost hear the consternation of peer commanders as the Lamanites massed in front of the narrow entrance with their large force. It must have been clear that this was an option doomed to failure. It was also a scenario that did not allow for the use of the Lamanites' greatest advantage— Numbers. The Lamanite armies attacked the place of entrance and, quote, were driven back from time to time, close quote, as we are told in Alma 49.21. The Lamanites suffered heavy casualties or suffered an immense slaughter as they continued to try to force their way into this relatively narrow space. I described the fighting of a single soldier in episode 17, or part 4.2, when I described the actions of Amantu at the waters of Cebus. If you recall, Amantu fought first with a missile volley, and then he followed with the melee. The Nephites at Noah were able to do both simultaneously throughout the battle, as those at the place of entrance focused on the melee, as other Nephites along the wall were able to use their missile weapons against Lamanites not yet engaged in the melee. The Nephites on the wall were protected from the return fire of the Lamanites by their defensive fortifications. One can sense the frustration of Lamanite chief captains and fighters, and why a Lamanite soldier who was further back in the mass and yet still attacked by the Nephites in the wall might turn to attacking the wall, as related in Alma 49, verse 22. Quote, 
Now, when they found that they could not obtain power over the Nephites by the pass, they began to dig down their banks of earth, that they might obtain a pass to their armies, that they might have an equal chance to fight. But behold, in these attempts, they were swept off by the stones and arrows which were thrown at them. And instead of filling up their ditches by pulling down the banks of earth, they were filled up in a measure with their dead and wounded bodies, close quote. It seems that the Lamanites began their attempt to, quote, dig down, close quote, the fortifications as an unplanned activity. It is possible that some of the peer commanders who were unable to engage in the melee, but who were still suffering losses from the missile fire of the Nephites on the wall, sought out of frustration to break through. Mormon tells us that they made this effort so, quote, that they might have an equal chance to fight, close quote. The Nephites effectively prevented these activities and were able to bring sufficient missile fire against the sappers that they died in numbers such that Mormon talks about the filling up the ditch in part with their corpses. The attacks continued until, quote, their chief captains were all slain, close quote, as we are told in Alma 49.23, which cost the Lamanites more than a thousand dead warriors. A combination of the initial shock of seeing the fortifications the futility of the attack at the place of entrance, and the loss of all those who had taken the oath caused the Lamanite armies to break and withdraw. This was truly a defeated collection of armies that returned to the land of Nephi. The fact that not a single Nephite was slain in the engagement speaks volumes about powerful Nephite warriors. The Nephite command and adjustments throughout this battle were limited. Lehi certainly placed his physically strong and mighty men at the entrance, He also positioned all of his other warriors around the walls such that they could see and engage the Lamanites wherever they chose to attack. This allowed him to utilize a lesson he must have learned at Manti, the power of surrounding your opponent and inflicting damage at numerous points simultaneously. The Nephites were not just inflicting casualties on the front ranks at the actual place of entrance but they were also wounding and killing men who were waiting to come forward and fight, and also those who hung back out of fear. A modern way to phrase this is creating depth in the killing zone. It is probable that these two battles, Ammonihah and Noah, could have happened on either the same day or on consecutive days. Clearly, the cities were close enough to allow for same-day engagements. There is no time reference other than the initial identification of the armies on a certain date. The tone of determination as the Lamanites moved from one city to the next implies that they went immediately into action rather than sleeping on it. Battlefield Leadership I want to briefly address the Lamanites and then the Nephite leadership. There is a potential parallel between the Greek army at the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC where 10 Athenian tribes or families were represented. In that battle, about 10,000 Athenians and 1,000 Plataeans faced an estimated Persian army of 25,000. Each Athenian tribe sent 1,000 hoplite warriors to fight the Persian army. Each thousand had a commander. The Greeks rotated command on a daily basis, so every 10 days the same person would repeat as commander. The complexity of this leadership organization was overcome by the fact that the Greeks were outnumbered and fighting on their own soil. They had to be united in battle. The Lamanites may have had a similar relationship with multiple chief captains, all of whom were treated as equals. 
Unlike the Greeks, the Lamanites were the invaders and did not have the force of necessity to bind them together. Additionally, I suppose that the leaders of the Lamanite armies were not from the same tribes and families of the soldiers as the chief captains were all Zoramites. Additionally, the Lamanites were surprised again. They were shocked by the strength of the fortifications at both places, and they made a battlefield decision to attack immediately the only avenue they identified. This decision negated their numerical advantage and placed the bulk of the army under missile fire without the ability to effectively return fire. The only reason the Lamanites attacked at all was because of the oath taken. Once the oath takers were dead, the enemy broke and fled the area. Now to Nephite leadership. Moroni looms large in this battle, even though he neither fought nor commanded in it. His understanding of the Lamanites and his appreciation for the sequence of events and the thinking behind each decision were the fundamental reasons why the Nephites won these battles. Lehi, too, made the key decision to place his strong men at the place of entrance. He understood that there was a single weak point, and just as Moroni was to reinforce the weaker fortifications with more soldiers, Lehi followed the same premise by fortifying the weakest part of his fortifications with the strongest soldiers. Significance Ammonihah and Noah established a baseline for what was to come in the Amalekite War. From these two battles, Amalekiah knew that he could not attack fully defended and fortified cities again. In the next engagements, I believe Amalekiah and his agents subverted the Nephite command by drawing their attention away from external defense and spying to internal dissension and conflict. It was the revolts of Morianton and the kingmen that drew Moroni and his armies from the frontier and either drew in the spy network or disconnected Moroni from it, which then left the Nephites vulnerable to attack. Just as the Lamanites understood the benefit of armor and began its use following the defeat at the Battle of Manti and the dissension of Malachiah, they also used the knowledge of attacking fortifications to come to new understandings and tactics for defeating them. Lessons Learned Military the most significant lessons revolve around empathy. Additionally, the Second Battle of Noah represents the forming of something that could be called Nephite proto-doctrine. Identification Moroni demonstrated his ability to see the battlefield through the eyes of his opponent. He could empathize with that opponent and then know what they would do and why. This provided him with a tremendous advantage over any opposing ground commander. Moroni knew where the Lamanites would seek to attack first and why. He understood the reaction of the Lamanite commander after seeing the fortifications and where they would go next. He then placed his pieces in the appropriate places and in the appropriate strength to guarantee victory. Without question, in my mind, this is one of the greatest examples of battlefield empathy in military history. Absolute genius. Isolation. The expeditionary nature of the Lamanite armies meant that they were without additional assistance. The Nephites were also slightly isolated. The spies that followed the Lamanite movements could eventually have informed Ammonihah of the enemy's focus on Noah, but that would have taken time for additional forces to react. Each army was forced to operate in isolation from the rest of their people. Suppression the Lamanite chief captains chose to focus all forces on the single place of entrance, and by so doing suppressed themselves. 
The movement from the place of entrance to sapping the wall didn't relieve the suppression as the Lamanite fighters remained under attack from apparently the same missileers as they were when attacking the place of entrance. Lehi, too, always maintained the ability to reposition within the city and along the walls. Maneuver As noted previously, the Lamanites were completely fixated on a single location. Their lack of imagination prevented them from envisioning the possibility of maneuver. Attacking the city from numerous places simultaneously may have stretched the defenders to the breaking point. That type of thinking requires on-the-spot creativity and a concept of flexible leadership. Neither was evident in these Lamanite armies. Destruction This is overwhelming destruction, a kill ratio of 1,000 to zero. It is nearly unheard of in warfare. Lehi used his defenses so effectively that his soldiers only suffered minor wounds. Lehi, through the planning and preparation of Moroni, defeated his opponents when they first looked out of the trees and realized that Noah was even better fortified than Ammonihah. Their will was destroyed, and Lehi simply had to continue the physical destruction until the force behind the attacks was removed. The Chief Captains Lessons Learned Spiritual What is to be learned from the details of these two battles? I hope that the following lessons are useful. I want to emphasize that these are some lessons that I have derived, and they are not a comprehensive list of all possible lessons, or even those most applicable for you in your life as you listen to this. 1. Know your enemy. This is one of these obvious statements and dates back thousands of years to thinkers like Sun Tzu, but that doesn't make it less true. Rather, it should be further emphasis of the importance of this point. The Book of Mormon teaches us about how Satan works and seeks to work. We have the example of Amalekiah as the archetype. We have Antichrist and Gadian robbers. These are all ways that Mormon is teaching us about how Satan operates then and today. We need to study these examples and see the tools and techniques present in our lives today. If you know your enemy, then you can surprise him and you can predict his actions. Both of these things happened in this battle. 2. Have a leader your enemy fears. Who does Satan fear? He fears one who has made and honors sacred covenants. He fears one who has successful combat experience where that person was courageous and steadfast. Be that person. Lehi too is a great example of the kind of person that we need to be. 3. Know your weak places, your places of entrance. How might Satan get into your life, your heart, your mind, your soul? 4. Place your mighty men or women in your place of entrance. Respond to the weaknesses by placing your strongest defenses there. Fortifications in this battle weren't simply walls and ditches. The fortifications were also the armored and shielded fighters who stood mightily as protectors of this place of entrance. 5. Adjust fire as the enemy adjusts. Satan will shift his focus. No wall will last if it is undefended. All obstacles need to be overwatched by observation and fire. This is a lesson from modern warfare and applicable to this ancient battle and our present personal battles. Lehi too moved people or their missile engagement when the enemy changed the place of attack. 
6. The Poetry of Total Victory When you do all of the things already mentioned, then you can drive away the enemy while completely saving your force. Lehi too kept all of his soldiers alive. We will see this again with the story of the sons of Helaman, or the 2,000 stripling warriors. Complete obedience equals complete survival. Note that this doesn't mean you will be unscathed. Conclusion This is referred to as part one of the Amalekiahite War, because what happens four and a half years later is a continuation of the same war under the same leader with the same objectives. It is not a coincidence that Amalekiah changed his tactics. Though he had to have been furious with the failure of his field commanders, he understood things well enough to completely change tactics. He met preparation with preparation. He realized that he must prepare the battlefield in the land of Zarahemla, just as Moroni had done. It is probable that within a short time of him receiving news of the defeat, Amalekiah was sending emissaries to contact his compatriots who were still at Zarahemla, and he began a correspondence with them to eventually overthrow the central government, and he promised an external attack to match. Given his tendency toward being less than truthful, it is likely that he did not intend to link his attack with the uprising at Zarahemla, but rather he sought for them to draw off Moroni and leave the perimeters of the nation open for attack. Additionally, Amalekiah realized that he needed to lead the battle personally so that he could get the most benefit from the mass of soldiers. He also changed focus from small border towns to one of the two major cities, Bountiful. To get his warriors to agree, he must have promised them a greater prize to match the greater risk. The Nephites continued to fragment as a nation. The tribal divides seemed to grow with each generation, and the greater the distance the people were from living the gospel culture, the greater the divisions. The next episode focuses on the actions of the kingmen, who I believed were inspired by Amalekiah's seduction to dissent from Nephite rule and again call for a change in government. The fight against the kingmen was Moroni's main effort throughout the Amalekiahite War, even though Mormon provides us with few details. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.